Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, a podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm an investigative journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts at the front line of the battle to save our planet. My guests are economists, scientists, politicians and academics. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic and ecological crises that we face today. And they reveal their solutions to mitigate the damage to our future. This is a critical time for our planet. It demands critical thinking. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. Carl Safina is an ecologist and author of seven nonfiction books about animals and nature, and more recently, the essential relationship between humankind and the natural world. On today's episode, he reveals the new book he's working on, which is absolutely fascinating, about different cultural zones to examine where we went wrong and how Western thought and, frankly, Western colonialism became the driving force in the world, and what it is that we have to learn from other cultures and their history. Through that conversation, we discuss the ethics and theology, both of the history of humankind and what we see in the natural world. And then Carl divulges the fascinating things he observed in the three species he studied for his book, Becoming Wild. I hope you enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. If you love the episode, do consider taking out a paid subscription over at planetcritical.com to support the project. Carl, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Well, thank you very much, Rachel. It's really a pleasure. (laughs) You said in your email that um, you don't often get the chance to to platform your own work, but I find that incredible because you've written seven, seven, right, nonfiction books about animals and nature, and they seem to be extremely popular and really highly regarded. Yes, I really don't know why I said that. <laughs> because it's not really true. Well, then it's my honor to have you on the show. Well, it's, my, it's certainly my honor to be here with you. So let's get into it. I haven't had a chance to get um, my hands on a copy because we set this up quite quickly. Oh, but okay. I've tried to do my around research. One of the quotes that I pulled up was about how nature and human dignity require each other. Mm-hmm. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? If you look at places where people have destroyed nature, uh, a place like Haiti, for instance, the, the poverty that results makes it really impossible for people to get back on their feet. And the you know, sheer struggle for survival makes it really impossible for people to come anywhere near their human potential. So human dignity really requires nature. On the other hand, people who are really struggling or who have had their dignity robbed by, let's say, uh, an autocratic dictator, uh, an oppressive regime, they don't have the luxury to think about the natural world or natural beauty or even parks or taking care of nature around them because their dignity has been taken from them. And so that's why I say that nature and human dignity require each other. Hmm. So if people are put into a precarious situation politically, then that fight for survival... Then nature suffers. And and if nature has been destroyed, then then the suffering of people make it almost impossible for them to get get back to a, a place where they can really fulfill their human potential. How did you come to start 
studying this question or this relationship between nature and um, what human society? Well, uh, I just really always loved animals from the time I was a very small boy. And I'm not really sure exactly why. I mean, I guess it might be something that all of us are born with, or it might be something like a talent, you know, like some people, they, they just always were good at picking up musical instruments from the time they were little. I don't know. I don't know which of those it, it, it you know, helps explain it, but I just always loved animals and I always wanted to be around animals and around anything that, that had to do with what we call nature, which is a, a fraught word and a fraught concept. But um, since I lived in a city, I lived in Brooklyn, New York, there was actually a distinction to be, to be observed between, you know, concrete and nature. But even there, animals always fascinated me, the, the pigeons, the, uh, the stray cats, whatever it happened to be. And I just, you know, always, I mean, my entire life has always been really the same, just trying to understand better, get more intimate with the rest of life on earth and how it is that it exists, what it is, what it means. And in, and in the meantime, all of that is just really beautiful. So, um, you know, the, the payoff is continual. The only problem is that nowadays, so is the heartache because many things are in such precarious shape and there are so many problems to try to attend to. Mm, yeah, but I think that's what's so interesting about positioning the problem as a relational issue rather than looking at um, smaller problems within a grander ecosystem like okay so this has happened you know the, the ocean acidification and the effect on coral or the effect or, or bees or whatever like looking at it as an issue of how humans have kind of lost touch with the natural world and lost touch with their part in it yeah surely that is part of the solution hugely. well that's that's uh really fundamental to the whole thing is that uh, all of life is relational some cultures have always seen life as relational, but our culture sees it as inventory. We're sort of just groping inventory instead of understanding anything about relationships, really. And, and that problem actually seems to me to be getting worse. The, the, the more people are disconnected and the less they're taught and the less they're exposed as young people, the fewer experiences that we're able to have the, the problem of alienation from the rest of the living world seems to be actually getting worse. And um, that causes, I think, some of the problems of the modern psyche, sense of alienation, sense of powerlessness, uh, a loss of a sense of purpose. I mean, m many people just sort of grimly work to pay their bills you know, those kinds of things, I think. Not that, not that this is the only reason for all the problems, but it's a big reason for many of the problems that we have. And I think it makes, makes some problems worse that we, we just see ourselves as uh, alone on this planet when the, not, not only is the opposite 
true in terms of the fact that, oh, we're here with birds and we're here with plants and trees and things like that. But we, we could never have come to be and we cannot exist without relationships, many kinds of relationships in space and time to the rest of life on Earth and to the non-living things and cycles that make life possible. But for, uh, for most people, this is something that I think just never comes up in, in thinking or conversation. At least that's my impression when I talk to a lot of people. Um, it's, it's not part of their awareness at all. And it's, uh, it's such an overwhelming part of my awareness that the difference mm -hmm. is very stark. It's so interesting because I had um, another guest on the podcast discuss, you know, what, what does even a, a human individual mean when, if you think about it, we're in eco there's lots of other creatures that are living within us, like the microbiome in our gut that are technically not part of our, you know, cellular being, but without them, we wouldn't survive. Right. So even we are an ecosystem. Well, we're, we're an ecosystem. We're an interchange. We are a, a tiny little sparkle from the continuity of our species and and all of the rest of life mm -hmm. out of the deep past if, if you if you ever talk to people who are paleoecologists you immediately get a, a sense of the depth in time that we represent or that any any living thing represents just this tiny little spark on a on a tremendous timeline but Almost nobody thinks of it that way. We just look around and we see what we see and we react to what we react to. And, you know, I mean, if, as far as being, you know, uh, not just an ecosystem, but an interchange, you try holding your breath for four minutes. We rely constantly on a flow of air and a, and a flow of material, which we call food. And, you know, we just think, oh, I'm eating lunch. But, you know, think a little deeper into what, is going on and what is required to exist. And you start mm. to see those relationships that are, that you mentioned that are really the fundamental thing that some cultures realized in ancient times and that our culture seems to be doing its best to forget. I think even splitting it between ours and theirs now is complicated because with the advent and sort of exponential growth of globalization and capitalism and commodification and all of these things. Um, it's the culture of commodification, which is the global culture now because of the precariousness that it engenders by taking away people's natural habitats and their abilities to feed themselves. That's absolutely true. And actually, I'm working on a book right now that is a lot about this and looking at different major cultures around the world or cultural realms around the world. And if you, if you look at what, what I've settled on is four cultural realms, indigenous people, South Asian people, East Asian people, and Western people, the most destructive, aggressive, and alienated by far is our culture, the Western culture. All of the other ones were relational to a very large degree. And in the West, we came to believe that the world is not a good place, that it's a profane place, and that our attention should mm -hmm. lie elsewhere. In, 
in the case of Plato, it was in these perfect, what he called forms, which he believed existed somewhere in some disembodied way. And his ideas were sort of swept up into Christian theology. And in the, you know, Christian theology came to dominate the West. And in Christian theology, the world is of no theological consequence. It's your attention is supposed to be only on the afterlife, you know, getting to heaven. This total dismissal and often denigration of the world and belief and hope that the world will end soon, because that's what the prophecy says and anticipates, is is an unbelievably destructive and very strangely outlying force in the history of human thinking. But it has come to dominate the world uh, because the market system that it happened to spawn is the, is the thing that has come to dominate. The, the world is globalized, but the globalization is a Western one. Yeah. And, and that is a catastrophe for life on Earth. And I think we're starting to see that it is becoming a catastrophe for the prospects for human dignity and human existence. That is fascinating, looking at the alienation of man from nature as distilled through a theological relationship to the, the Christian deity. Well, that's, uh, I, I think it is fascinating. I mean, I, most of what I've been writing about for the last year is stuff that I really never knew before because, you know, I'm an ecologist. I, I was interested in trying to understand how life works and where life came from and those kinds of things. I wasn't really interested in what a bunch of ancient people thought, but, um, this is what I've been working on because I'm I'm trying to understand why we treat the world the way we treat the world. And I, I have found it beyond fascinating to get into these topics. And I've so, sort of given myself uh, a new bachelor's course in the, uh, I, I guess you would call it cultural humanities or something like that. And it's it's really been astonishing to me that indigenous people, South Asian people, East Asian people in ancient times all saw the human place in the, in the world as relational. And our role was to make sure that the world understood that we respected it, or our role was to maintain the balances, or trying to understand how things are had to do with understanding the necessity of opposites that that is called yin and yang but in the west none of that respect and none of that relationality is what became western culture and what was seen in the east as necessary opposites uh, you know winter and summer and hot and cold and these things that make the world work was just seen as um well, things decay and, and the world mm. is, is bad, but, but there must be perfect forms somewhere. And these, these very strange fantasies, really, that mostly came out of Plato's head. And Plato had his critics, but the, the critics did not hold the day. And then these mm. ideas that the earth is uh, 
is a profane and decaying place became a matter of faith. And, you know, at that point, really kind of the game was lost. Now, where, where we're going to go from here, I don't know. But the current trends are, well, they're somewhere between bad and terrifying. And yet, secularism is becoming uh, an increasingly popular option in the West. Um, the monotheistic deity uh, that says the, the world is profane and awaits us you know, after the pearly gates is no longer many people's god. So do you think that culturally that belief became an ingrained truth through thousands of years of, of religious practice? Or do you think that we've transferred that relationship with an omnipotent and judgmental God onto something else? Like, why is it still a problem? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a really good question and a really good line of thought. Um, I, I would say two things. One is that you think secularism is increasingly popular because you're in Europe. Mm. In the United States, I would say the opposite trend is definitely true. The politics here have become very religious, very religiously driven, very religiously entrenched. And, uh, and many millions of people in the U.S. are trying to make the United States a Christian nation, and they're, they're currently succeeding, mm. along with the trend in, in Europe especially of secularization, there's another trend which is um, really worrisome really dangerous actually and that and that is the rise of autocrats um i don't want to get too deeply into that it's a little bit off topic okay but um you know the 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 united states right now for instance is in really grave peril and you have autocrats i mean in in brazil and in great britain there are people who are just you know chomping to get full and permanent control of things mm -hmm. so that's that's a trend that I see coming on faster and harder and is much more, well, there's nothing good about it. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that if you look at the roots of some of the modern ways that we value things, and I, modern, I don't mean in the last 20 years, I mean in the last, let's say, four or 500 years, people like Descartes and Bacon, who were Catholics, but also were afraid of the Catholic Church, especially Descartes, who was shocked at what the Church had done to Galileo, and it made Descartes hold back what he had just finished as his masterwork at the time. So there was some pivoting on the part of these thinkers who came out of a Catholic tradition but what they gave us was a sort of a secular series of ideas with which to see the world as a profane and devalued place. So in a way, they took the values that they grew up with in a religious context and they intellectualized them so that you don't have to be a Christian anymore to 
simply see the world as inventory or to see life as machinery mm. and therefore to not treat it with any respect. Now, I, as an ecologist, you know, I'm perfectly capable of seeing a certain amount of inventory, like, you know, you can list species, but you also should realize a species is a manifestation of relationships. That's what makes a species possible is, is there are relationships there. In ecology, it's called a, a niche, but, um, at any rate, you know, you can, you can see all these things in different ways and you can see it as inventory. You can even see that a lot of life does have a lot of what you might call, you know, mechanistic nature to it. A, a lot of our metabolism is in fact chemistry, but there are a lot of other things going on. There are these emergent properties that are not just explained as the sum of things. They result from things, right? Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, you know, no matter how you see things in, in the living world, if you look at the universe, you see that the living world is only observable here. It, it may be that there is no life anywhere else. It may be that there is life in many places, but it's exceptionally rare. And uh, at any rate, it's what we have. It's our home. We can see easily that when we abuse it, it gets hurt and becomes, among other things, less productive, or, or that other creatures are capable of sensing well-being or misery. At any rate, what I'm getting to is, regardless of whether you see life from any kind of uh, a, a religious context, it, it should be seen as sacred, and it should be responded to as holy, because it's miraculous, first of all, you know, the second law of thermodynamics is that the universe tends toward disorder. Well, life is self-ordering and self-perpetuating. It proliferates and gets more complex over time. It, it actually breaks the second law of thermodynamics. And um, what breaks the laws of physics is called a miracle by definition. Life is a miracle. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, we treat it like trash, literally. This willingness to be brutal is why the West has globalized the world, not because we have better ideas, but because we've destroyed people who oppose us. It kind of goes back to that, um, not monotheistic, but that the, a concept of mono, the fact that life breaks the second law of thermodynamics and is therefore by definition a miracle. And the fact that it is the only life within our reach, um, the rarity of that which we are capable of perceiving, it's astonishing that any of us exist here and that we can all exist, uh, all these species can exist in tandem together. And yet it's so common to us because it is our planet and it is our way of life that there seems to be this impossibility or... Ugh, difficulty in human cognition and logic to accept multiple things to be true at the same time. That's only because we're not really very intelligent. Mm. You know, we, we are phenomenal tinkerers, but mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, deep perception, that does not come naturally. And on top of that, we have a culture of denigration and a and a culture of ignoring it so that, you know, there are some people with 
deep perception. There are deep thinkers. There are people who have the luxury of thinking about these kinds of things all the time, and they have things to say. But they're not the big stars. They're not the world leaders. They're not the people with the biggest influence mm. because what gets attention most of the time, immediate short-term things, things that dazzle, things yeah. that offer instant gratification along some very shallow lines, those, those kinds of things. Yeah, we have a market economy of knowledge. Yeah. I just have to ask, uh, I want to ask a quick question about how you chose those cult those cultural hubs. What was it, the term that you called? Cultural zones? I don't know what I called it. Uh, realms, realms. Cultural realms. Yeah. Okay, so we, we've discussed the West. Um, how was it that you then chose the other three as South Asia, East Asia, and Indigenous? Well, I, I, I guess, you know, to back up a little bit, I, right before the pandemic shut everything down, the last conference I attended was, it was a very unusual conference that had a, a wide realm of people there by design. And they ranged from what's called impact investors. In other words, very, very rich people who are trying to advance a mission of good with their investments. Yeah. Journalists some scientists and some indigenous people and some social justice people. And these were um, American indigenous people from between Canada and Mexico. There were five such people at the conference. And um, hearing them talk, it occurred to me that they had really all the answers about how we should live together in community, in respect for the wider world, and in respect for time, but they had no power at all and they had essentially no voice. And they came from people who had been thoroughly broken by the ravages of European colonialism and American genocide, right? But they seem to have the answers. So I, I, I mean, I've always been a little fascinated, but not very knowledgeable about indigenous people in the Americas. So I started to think about the, you know, the fact that, that I felt that they had really the answers to a lot of the problems. And, you know, what, what, what did that mean that I felt that way, you know, had to do with them seeing the, the world in terms of relationships. I started reading a lot more about it and, and trying to formulate a book around this idea. And uh, I realized that it didn't quite work to just pit American indigenous people against the rest of the industrial world, but to try to understand where the industrial world came from, why it is as aggressive as it is, and who else has had other thoughts about it. So I started to look into you know, the religions that there's a lot of information on of, of Asia. And a scholar that I was talking to said, well, it's not just really, you know, Asia, it's really the South of Asia and East Asia have overlapping, but different traditions. Confucianism is pretty different in many ways from Hinduism and Buddhism and things like that. So that became the four right there, indigenous, South Asian, East Asian, and the West. And in thinking and writing about this for a whole year, you know, there are two things. One is that that's a tremendous oversimplification of all of the many, many, many different little denominations in thought and action over 
the course of the last few thousand years. But but also it actually it, it works well enough to, you know, help put us in perspective in the way that people have viewed and thought about the world and the human place in it. Okay. Do you think that there is a danger of romanticizing and putting the onus on indigenous cultures to save us, our Western souls from ourselves? Well, there is a danger in, there's a danger that, you know, one can romanticize. I, I think the problem with indigenous people is they are people and they're not perfect. But mm-hmm. um, I think with, you know, with enough warning to that effect that there were things indigenous people like indigenous people were frequently at some sort of low-level warfare some of them had slaves the status of women varied from having you know essentially no particular influence to being um leaders so with those caveats in mind i still think there's simply an awful lot to learn about community respect, economic equity. I mean, indigenous people did not have rich and poor people or people who were deprived. They they basically were all at the same level pretty much all the time. Mm -hmm. And the inequalities in our culture are the source of, I would say, essentially all of our social problems, they, they didn't have inequalities in their economic life. There, there's just a lot to learn there. I, I wouldn't say there's any onus on them. It's not their responsibility to fix anything. It's just that there's, they had a lot of the answers right. The life is relational and they mm-hmm. understood that. They, they, they got a lot of the details wrong you know, a lot of what they believed, um, I don't think is factually correct. Believing, for instance, that when uh, when a hunter kills an animal, it's only because the animal has decided to allow itself to be killed in order to take care of people. That's, that's a, a common kind of indigenous perception. I don't think that's factually true, but the consequences are I mean, look at like in the, in the Northwest, um, you had these unbelievable runs of salmon, you know, probably trillions of salmon. And the natives believed that the salmon were people who lived at the bottom of the sea, who transformed themselves into fish, and at certain times of the year came into rivers so that they could take care of the people of the land. And if you did not respect them with various kinds of traditional ceremonies, to you know offer thanks and etc then they might get offended and stop coming now i think factually all of that is false but operatively look at what we've done we disrespected them and they stopped coming <laughs> yeah good point yeah <laughs> i mean it's it's an it's a narrative device isn't it and it's it's very effective at um hammering home that relationship between um, the society in question and the rest of the world. So things don't have to be factually true for them to be right, in a sense. Well, they don't have to be factually true for them to be operatively true. As a a person Mm. of science, I am very interested and concerned with things being factually true. I want to understand what's really going on. 
to me, understanding what's really going on leads to the kinds of approaches that can work long-term. I don't see any conflict between understanding and things like reverence, uh, respect, a sense of holiness, a sense of sacredness, a sense mm -hmm. of walking in beauty, all, all of these things. Uh, to me, there's no contradiction at all in that. In fact, one leads directly to the other. There are other paths there. There's you know, what, what you just called, I think, uh, a narrative path. There's a metaphorical path. There are different paths there. I would rather take the factual path, but it happens to lead to essentially the same place, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I think it's that removing of binaries again, the fact that you say that there's no contradictions. And that's what's most important, because arguably, since the, uh, the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment, the pursuit of knowledge at all costs has not been beneficial to the planet's widest ecosystem. It's been very beneficial to many people in that it's lifted many of us out of poverty. It's um, addressed medical issues. It's given us a new realm of relating to the self more than anything else, really. Because I'm interested in narratives, I would argue that you need that level of mysticism and holiness that you're um, bringing to the table in order to get a fuller picture. Well, if you want to argue, I'll argue. <laughs> I'll argue that you just tangled up two very different things. You okay. said the pursuit of knowledge at all costs. The pursuit of knowledge is one thing, and not caring about what you destroy in the process is a different thing. You could pursue knowledge, which is my deep personal inclination and say, wait, if, if we go down that path, the, the destruction that will cause doing that is not worth it. Let's, let's back away from this kind of thing. I mean, you know, it, it could be, for instance, that the people who were developing atomic bombs said to each other, hold on now. Mm -hmm. we should not have atomic bombs in the world. Mm -hmm. So the pursuit of knowledge is different from at all costs. I think that people could pursue knowledge and weigh the costs and decide what implications of knowledge and technology, that's another thing that gets tangled up all the time, is that knowledge and technology are not the same thing. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. can read lots and lots and lots of science journals that never talk about technology or what you could do with certain kinds of knowledge. A lot of them mm -hmm. pursue knowledge just to understand the world a lot better. There's a big part of what happens with some knowledge is it goes into this tinkering that I mentioned earlier, which is just to create more and more technology, some of which has horrible consequences. So the pursuit of knowledge and the creation of technology and injecting some values, some long-term values or some social values into the implications of what you might do with a little piece of that knowledge that you use to create technology, those to me are all very different things and not the same thing. I agree. I agree. But I think there is one excellent example of the pursuit of knowledge coming to a point where the questions of morals and values and ethics and respect, it becomes very difficult. And that would be, uh, for example, animal testing for uh, the medical industry. So not the cosmetics, but for genuine medicines, medical emergencies, um, 
trying to come from a place of willingness to to heal and create medicine and it ties in back with your original passion i mean that's i think that's a really good example of is that knowledge at all cost is that the kind of knowledge we need should we be doing it um what do you think about it well i think that many things have fuzzy borders i think that's one of the things that has fuzzy borders animal testing is something i know actually very little about I, mm-hmm. I've read that a lot of the animal medical testing has resulted in no useful knowledge at all. Oh, really? I've read that. I don't know if it's true. It probably is true because in anything like that, there are dead ends and there are things that don't really work. But some animal models and some some immune systems of other species don't seem to respond the way that the human one does. So what do you do with this? I mean, I think one of the things you do is you kind of have like a thoughtful debate about it and set some kinds of policies or guidelines. I mean, Darwin, very briefly, he touched on the problem of using animals for experiments. And he said, basically, you know, that the suffering is not worth it unless it adds to a very significant increase in our knowledge. So, you know, he had a provisional way of thinking about it. Uh, There are a lot of people who don't have a provisional way of thinking about it. They'll say uh, animals can't feel anything and then they'll test cosmetics on them to see if it stings. Well, if it stings, they feel something, right? So what in the world are you talking about? This is the kind of mindlessness with which many people have you know, just gone ahead and done anything they want because they have no sense of respect or they simply don't care about the suffering of others. And and this, this literally bleeds, you know, from other species to other kinds of people where the amount of suffering that, you know, colonialism, for instance, caused to human beings far, far outweighs any amount of suffering has ever been caused testing cosmetics. You know, I mean, we've literally destroyed millions of people in their ancient cultures. So it has to do, I think, with an ethic of ethics. Do you have an ethical approach to life or do you just do anything that you can get away with? Mm. Um, so your question to me, you know, how, how do you think about that thing? I think, first of all, you do think about it. You, you know, you, you just try to set some guidelines up, like how much of an advance is enough, is any advance enough? There are people who would say never, you can never use another species in testing. Maybe you would use human volunteers. But but at any rate, I think that th- there's been a huge battle over simply whether to apply any ethics at all. What's basically happened is that more and more ethics have been applied to things like testing or medical research with other species. And that's Mm. um, part of the the success of people who objected to inflicting suffering on Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. non-humans. Tell me, when you were studying the macaws, sperm whales, and uh, chimpanzees for becoming wild, when you were studying their societies, did you see um, patterns of, of ethics within these animal cultures? I, I would say generally no, but in a way it depends on what you mean by 
ethics. All of those species know other individuals as individuals. In, in other words, they know who their family is, or they know who their mates are, they know who their friends are, and they understand some things that are at stake. The sperm whales, you could say, in a sense, put a lot of value in family. The family is always together for the length of their entire lives, the decades-long uh -huh. length of their lives. They have other families that they're friends with. Certain groups of families form what the researchers call a clan, and all the families in a clan will socialize with each other, but they will not socialize with a different clan. Mm, okay. Culture causes individuals to come together and form groups, but it also causes some groups to repel each other or to um, avoid each other, I guess is the easiest way to say that. Um, with the macaws, for instance, there's a tremendous amount of devotion among a mated pair, but the nesting cavities are at a premium. And so there's there are always other macaws who do not have a place to nest. They nest in big holes in gigantic old trees. So macaws that have formed a pair but do not have a place to nest, they try to get a nest site away from a pair that has it, and they do that very violently. What would you say about the ethics of this when they all know exactly what's going on? The, the raiders know they're trying to take it, and the possessors know that they are defending it. And it sometimes is done so violently that some of the birds kill each other in the process. So I don't know if that's a sense of ethics or what you would call that. I mean, it certainly mirrors a lot of human behavior where people see things they want and they just go take it, and the ones who mm -hmm. have it try to defend it to the death. So without worrying too much about the definition of ethics, I would say that I do see some of these kinds of behavioral patterns that are very much mirrored in some of the other species. The chimpanzees do have kind of a sense of ethics because they not only are really obsessed with male dominance, but there are some males who do not contest dominance. They just stay outside of it. There are some females who like to hang around the most dominant males. There are other females who don't want to be anywhere near these groups because they apparently don't like the drama and the violence that occasionally erupts. And when there are fights, which there frequently are, well, there's always um, deferring to more dominant individuals and shows of submission and all of this sort of etiquette that is a bit reminiscent of you know, what might go on in a, in a royal court, you know, who has to defer to who with what show mm -hmm. of proper posturing and stuff like that. It's very ape-like, really. That we're very chimpanzee-like. Chimpanzees and humans are pretty, well, they're pretty similar to each other and they're pretty different from other apes that don't really have this kind of drama and, and all these shows of submission and superiority. Really, only chimpanzees and humans do this. But then, because the fights are inevitable, there, there are also ways of making up and smoothing things over that are done very, very consciously and deliberately so that life can continue. And humans do very similar sorts of things. 
living in a group inevitably causes strains and stresses. And we find some of that unavoidable. I mean, many of the things that humans fight about are trivial. And, and then we have to, you know, kiss and make up and get along. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. And, and we, we sense intuitively that there's more, more value in staying together than in letting things fall apart. And, and chimpanzees are very similar in that way. It makes me think of um, a little piece I read a few years ago that argued our understanding of human society and which shapes the current cultural mode has been greatly informed by the fact that we discovered chimpanzees before we discovered bonobos, because we share the exact same amount of um, genetics with chimpanzees as we do with bonobos. Correct. And while chimpanzees are violent and hierarchical, bonobos are very, very equal and peaceful uh, societies. And female-led. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, I'm conscious of uh, how much time I'm taking up, Dr. Safina. Uh, do you know when like your book is going to come out yet? Can we can we say when people can keep an eye on it, or are we not at that stage yet? Becoming Wild is certainly out. It's been it's mm -hmm. been out for um, more than a year and a half. But the book I'm working on is only about seventy percent done. It will not be out for probably another year and a half. Well, once it is, I'll be keeping an eye out. Email me because okay. it, it sounds honestly fascinating. I can't wait to read it. Much as Paul platformed you, is there someone that you would like to platform? I'm going to say Jonathan Myberg. He is a very, very interesting and creative person. He's written one book that has true lyric power. He's at the top of my mind right now because I was just just before I had to come on with you, I was writing a letter of recommendation for him for a Guggenheim Fellowship for a new wow. book that he is proposing to do. He's not on a conservation mission, sort of the way that I am, but um, he writes about the living world really unusually beautifully and powerfully. And I think he would likely have a lot to say. Great. Well, I would love to speak with him. I've so enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. The feeling is very much mutual. Oh, um, I, I, and I'll give you another another name, mm -hmm. Ian Urbina. And what does he do? He helped expose the fact that a lot of fishing involves slavery nowadays and uh, you know, kidnapping, forced labor, trafficking, and slavery. Right. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, good. I'm so pleased. I'll email you when, when the episode comes out. Okay, that's great. Yeah, I'll look forward to that. I've put links to both Becoming Wild and Carl's website, where you can find his other books, over at planetcritical.com, where you can subscribe to support this podcast. If you liked today's episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. Thank you so much for listening. See you next week.